trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, I have some wonderful things to share with you today. Uh, That is provided you're one of those rare people who is actually out there looking for a little better understanding, a little more light, a little more truth, a little clearer view of what's going on. And it's not because, hey, I've got all those things in spades and I'm, you know, I am God's gift to uh, what the truth is. Nope. I'm just a guy who takes seriously staying rooted in reality and I'm here to help anybody else who likewise endeavors to uh, see things as they really are, and, and also dares to dream about how they could be. In other words, when you see things where there, there's a deficit or a deficiency, and, and that it shouldn't be like that. I sincerely believe I'm talking to the kind of individual who is trying to do something about it. Now, if you're like most of us, maybe you don't know exactly where to begin. That's pretty common. It's a big world. It's a lot of problems, a lot of things we have to, to uh, contend with, and, and a lot of things that need solutions. But if we even start with just little things right there where we're standing, it's amazing how things do change for the better. So thanks again for tuning in, whether you're a longtime listener or uh, just finding this for the first time. Well, I think one of the more telling signs of the times is this effort to criminalize pointing out tyranny, or standing up to tyranny. Maybe you've noticed this. I, I mean, look, when, when the whole January 6th thing happened, it was pretty clear that, oh boy, here it comes. This is the coup that, uh, that is going to outlaw any kind of political dissent. And frankly, if you followed any of Julie Kelly's writings on this subject, she's probably one of the single best reporters out there as far as factually talking about the show trials that are being put on. And I guess she sat in a judge's courtroom yesterday pretty much by herself. Mainstream media won't touch it. Well, we already know everything we need to know about those proud boys and whatnot. But she talked about how the judge went through this this performative thing, reading, I think she said he took a couple of hours to read his notes, smiling as he read them and reminded people of how serious this is. As he gets ready to sentence some of these proud boy defendants to something like 25 years in prison. Now, people who've been paying attention understand there may have been some people who got out of line on January 6th, but there were clearly some people who were operating in a very organized fashion, and it's becoming more and more clear as more of the footage is starting to come out that uh, the Capitol Police had people undercover, the FBI had people who were there undercover, there were people who uh, very likely were provocateurs, agitators, and and this is to say nothing of the Antifa guy, what was his name, Mr. Sullivan, who was dressed in MAGA gear and yet was right there when Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer. Yeah, but it was all right-wing extremists trying to overthrow the government. Nope, nope, that narrative doesn't hold water any longer. But uh, to, to show you a more mild example, okay, that's, that's a pretty extreme one. You know, the people who were there at the Capitol and, you know, tussling with the cops, that was one thing. How about this? How about a 12-year-old Colorado boy thrown out of class for having a Gadsden flag patch on his backpack? 
Now, I'm, I'm going to refer to, I, I linked to an article here from American Thinker. This is from Olivia Murray. And uh, I'll start with a couple of her observations. She says, you know, when George Orwell authored the infamous slogans of Oceania's party, he purposely worded them to be the most obnoxiously glaring pieces of propaganda. The juxtaposed, juxtaposed terms were in fact opposites and entirely oxymoronic. War is not peaceful. Freedom is not slavery. Ignorance is not strength. But she says, it looks like Colorado school administrators and teachers didn't get the memo and instead gorged on regime disinformation. It's almost like they considered themselves in the bulking phase for an upcoming strength in ignorance competition. Being uneducated, uninformed, obtuse, and illiterate are only strengths if you're a leftist. Now, I'm going to turn from here to Connor Boyack, who actually was the one who kind of blew the whistle on this. And, and kudos to Connor for, for doing this. Talking about 12-year-old Jaden, a student at a charter school in Colorado Springs who yesterday was kicked out of class for disruptive activities. Now, he didn't punch anyone. He didn't shout, curse, make noise, or act in any unruly way. Quite the contrary. He's a well-mannered boy who dresses and acts in an upstanding way. Now, it just so happens that he's also very patriotic. Now, he, de- he portrays his patriotism with clothing, sometimes wearing a tri-corner hat and also on his backpack featuring a Don't Tread on Me Gadsden flag. But the director at Vanguard School, where Jaden attends, appears to believe that this historic flag has origins with slavery and is disruptive to the classroom environment. And the, the director at that school told the boy's mother Jaden could not return to class unless the patch was removed. Now, it's interesting. If you go to the Twitter account, and I believe, I don't, let me see. I think, the, I think there is, yeah, there's a, there's a link to the, the Twitter video in the article that I link in today's show notes. But holy cow. This administrator just goes on and on about, well, it's a disruptive to the classroom environment problem. And then she hides behind the, um, what would you call it? She hides behind policy. Everybody's a cop, you know, and, and it's just, it's so crazy. But I have no, I have no, there's nothing I can do. It's policy. Policy is we don't want anything disruptive. And, and in other words, the thinking is done. But the problem is, there really was nothing slavery related to this, to this patch on this kid's backpack. Connor says, this is clear viewpoint discrimination. In fact, the school district policy that the director cited only relates to things that would feature drugs, tobacco, alcohol, or weapons, none of which apply to the Gadsden flag. And this unfortunate example is part of a much broader trend of schools using arbitrary policies to either enforce biased agendas or to censor students. Just as an aside, we saw this earlier this year in northern Idaho, where a kid who was graduating from, I think it was Post Falls High School, made the comment, boys are boys, girls are girls, there's nothing in between. And they literally, at one point, canceled and then uh, suddenly reinstated graduation, but made sure to exclude this boy for... Um, for observing something that I think most rational adults would say, well, we've, we've understood this for millennia. <laughs> What's the big deal? Fired a bus driver who came on his own time and stood in solidarity with this kid, you know, saying, you know, it was wrong to, to deny him the ability to walk at, at to graduation. Anyway, the unfortunate example, Connor says, is part of a much broader trend of these schools 
enforcing biased agendas or censoring students. Earlier this year, two Michigan students uh, were banned from wearing Let's Go Brandon clothing that was critical of, of President Biden. Another student was suspended for wearing a Women for Trump mask. Another was told to take off their There Are Only Two Genders t-shirt. Now, Connor reminds us decades ago, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Tinker versus Des Moines that political disagreement on school campuses is not only an inevitable part of the process of attending school, it's also an important part of the educational process. And yet schools like Vanguard empower activist administrators to enforce arbitrary interpretations of irrelevant policies to kick kids like Jaden out of class. Now, and this is another feather in, in Connor's cap. He found that uh, Jaden is an avid reader of the Tuttle Twins books. These are books that teach kids what their rights are, why they should stand up for them, just like Jaden is now doing. So uh, apparently Jaden and his mother reached out and asked for help in highlighting what the school had done to him. Connor was happy to oblige. Well, believe it or not, the story got so much traction, the Colorado governor responded, saying, obviously, the Gadsden flag is a proud symbol of the American Revolution and an iconic warning to Britain or any government not to violate the liberties of Americans. It appears on popular American medallions and challenge coins through today, and Ben Franklin also adopted it to symbolize the union of the 13 colonies. It's a great teaching moment for a history lesson. And Connor says, it is a lesson indeed. A lesson that government and school administrators create environments hostile to learning and expression, citing slavery and racism to attack things they dislike. And the key here is it's not the first time and it won't be the last, but it's also a lesson that sometimes you need to stand up to authority, even if your government might wrongfully allude to you being a domestic terrorist for doing so. He says the last thing, or the only thing necessary, rather, for the triumph of viewpoint discrimination and school policies that infringe on students' rights is for good students to do nothing. So kudos to Jaden for taking a stand for his rights. And by the way, the school, uh, the school directors actually had an emergency meeting. You can probably imagine why, right? The, the optics weren't looking so good on this. And they clarified that, yes, in fact, uh, there, there is really no problem with that. Jaden went to school anyway, even though he had been told, stay home. He went, he sat by himself, he played chess with himself. But uh, that's how it's done, folks. That's how it's done. Peacefully standing up for your rights. Well, it's, it's actually like this. You claim them, you use them, you defend them. Now, he did that peacefully at every turn. But what are we to make of that everything offends me, therefore, you know, especially things that to point out limits to government power, you can't do that. Sounds like we need to do more of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I feel better getting that off my chest. You know, I know there's a lot of folks talking about it today. It really did go viral, the kid uh, being thrown out of class for wearing a uh, Gadsden flag on his backpack. Doesn't it just seem like everything that possibly could symbolize, you know, uh, your freedom, your independence, celebrating it, is, is seen as uh, disruptive and somehow we, we need to stop that. And yet, uh, you know, I guess this, this illustrates what we're up against. And that is the, the biggest difference between those who love freedom and those who don't is that the ones who don't love freedom are the most insistent about forcing their worldview 
on everyone else. Well, now, Brian, he would, that kid could have been forcing his worldview on people. If they look at that Gadsden flag, you know, well, they're all going to think something. To which my answer is, so what? Are we grown-ups or are we a bunch of little kindergarten kids who are, are going to be triggered, you know, every time we see something shiny? Come on, let's, let's act like adults. Anything peaceful should be off-limits to government regulation. So the question now is, how do you stand up? How do you resist the corrupt and crooked policies and sometimes people that have attained some degree of authority? Got a great article here from Dee Parker, writing for AmericanThinker.com, that says, resisting the corrupted, crooked, far left is possible, but it does require a a very firm commitment to truth. Dee Parker says, many of us are seeing our country go sideways while being blamed for it, by every national socialist media source. He says, for the first time in history, the fascist far-left controlling class has arrested its leading political opponent, symbolized by the mugshot heard around the world. Now, this certainly isn't normal, and the proverbial scent of gasoline is starting to waft through the air. You're probably thinking, what can I do, though? Well, he says, the key strategy is to use our advantages against their disadvantages. Anti-liberty leftists have the advantage of a complete lack of moral character because they're saving the planet or something. He says they're also perfectly willing to weaponize the government whenever they can, and they dominate most of the media and indoctrination centers, by which he means schools. They lie like it's a bodily function and feel no remorse for doing so, former Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid, for example. Additionally, the collectivists have most of the nation's media behind them to fact-check any challenges into oblivion, oblivion rather, Russian collusion, COVID-19, suspicious election activities, etc. Now, of course, the fascist far left has disadvantages in that no one is really buying what they're selling. They're a fringe minority of the public, shrinking by the day, and so are their advantages. And his point is, lies and projections can only take them so far, and when people stop believing them and their comrades in the National Socialist media. Loss of trust is a lot like bankruptcy, says Dee Parker, in that it works two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Their willingness to exploit the government to their advantage quickly runs into the brick wall of incompetence, as we saw in Uvalde and also in Maui. He says, in some ways, it's almost laughably ironic that a thumbnail for a documentary on the National Socialist Labor Party in the 1920s had them trying to become respectable while our lying leftists are turning in the opposite direction, plumbing the depths of depravity at every turn. There's been plenty of talk about the dire straits we're in, but not enough about what to do about it. So, for better or for worse, he says, here's what we do to resist them. The short answer is, essentially, we do the opposite of what they are doing. They have a predilection for protective, prever- projective prevarication or lying and accusing us of which they are guilty. D. Parker says, we on the pro-freedom side of the political spectrum have the advantages of far superior ideas that have always worked. And this means we can be honest and always take refuge in the truth. Now, we also have the numbers with more people shifting to our side every day. Leftists will undoubtedly come back with a trivial distraction that our side isn't honest all the time, pointing at President Trump as their prime example. As others have pointed out, the major difference is that these are irrelevant things like insults or crowd sizes. Now, I would disagree with him on this one thing. 
because apparently whoever gets, you know, the nod to give Trump an interview, Tucker Carlson, I'm looking your direction. Apparently it's off limits to ask him about lockdowns and vaccines. And former President Trump, I think, would be doing himself and everybody else a favor if he would do the mea culpa and admit he was wrong in, in pushing those things in the first place. But that's, that's another story for another time. So as D, as D. Parker says, let's face it, the National Socialist media is always quick to pick apart anything we say, so we're forced to be honest as a regular course of action. Contrast this with the fascist far left and their media minions that have gone so crooked and so corrupt for their single-minded cause of gaining power that they've never met a lie they didn't like. We also take the opposite take of their usual tactics with the fascists of Antifa. Anyone who's made an objective assessment of the mostly peaceful protests of the fascist far left knows that force and violence go hand in hand with lies. And he quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, Let us not forget that violence does not and cannot exist by itself. It is invariably intertwined with the lie. They are linked in the most intimate, most organic and profound fashion. Violence cannot conceal itself behind anything except lies. And lies have nothing to maintain them, save violence. Anyone who has once proclaimed violence as his method must inexorably choose the lie as his principle. End quote. So the recent culture war victories in areas that have been forced on us by the far left should show everyone that even small changes multiplied by millions of patriots can have a major impact. Small changes such as the way we engage them in the marketplace of ideas, certain rules of engagement and selecting certain terms instead of others will make a big difference. He says the far left has built their socialist national agenda house of cards on a foundation of sand that is washing away as we speak. The unhinged political persecution of President Trump is clearly meant to stop anyone from questioning any fraud in the 2024 election by tying him up in lawsuits. But they're making him the front runner at the same time. He says their mendacity knows no bounds. And yet David Brooks, in his wisdom, thinks that anti-Trumpers are the good guys, the forces of progress and enlightenment. He says you have to wonder if that's severe self-delusion or outward deception. They never seem to comprehend that most people no longer see them this way. But they're headed down a dark road with blinders, unable to understand what they're becoming. And he says resisting them means exposing the collectivists with horrible ideas who've elevated their sordid skill of lying to an art form. The tide is already turning, and there isn't anything they can do about it except scream in their inevitable defeat. That sounds pretty confident, and I want to believe him. But I do agree with his underlying premise here of, look, we have to take the high road. And I know there are people who will disagree with me, and this is, this is one of the things that, that I so dislike about politics is, well, you know, you don't, you don't win by, you know, by being a good guy. You have to stoop at least as low as your opponent's. If that's the case, though, then what exactly are you fighting for? Look, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here, but I am trying to appeal to you have a conscience. I guess I, I identify with Leonard Reed, who talked about the higher the aspiration, or at least the higher the ideal that you're trying to promote, the higher the methods are going to be that you must use to attain that ideal. You cannot impose liberty on people against their will. 
You can't coerce them into accepting freedom. It's just, it's anathema. It's, it's ridiculous. You've got to use persuasion. You've got to be able to, to voluntarily make those choices and allow them and understand some people are not going to agree. Some people are going to choose otherwise. But I think the most important part is we have to know what it is that we're trying to promote or trying to defend. And this is where most of us tend to fall down. So it starts by working on our own understanding, honing it until we know it backwards and forwards. But more importantly, we're living it in such a way that uh, our words alone aren't necessarily the best tool to, to share the message. People can see we believe by the way that we live our lives. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying you have to, but I would love it if you did. So that's that's me asking you, please consider doing so. Go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Click on the show notes, any of the show notes, down at the bottom of the page. You'll see a subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email. If you'll share your email with me. I will share with you my show notes each and every day that I do this program. You know, it's kind of sad to see there are some maskaholics that are starting to creep out of the woodwork once again. And I guess it just was floating the idea, well, we're going to have to institute more COVID, uh, you know, lockdowns or I don't know what, more policies. Someone's trying to bring it back. And, and I could be wrong here, but I think that uh, this, this is going to be like pushing water uphill. It's just not going to work at this point because enough people have seen that, uh, you know, all of those efforts before the, the essential versus non-essential, shutting down businesses, distancing, and all of that kind of stuff, it didn't work. And in fact, I'm really grateful for the people that I see who are dragging out videos, for instance, of uh, Philadelphia cops dragging, physically, violently dragging an unmasked man off of a bus in Philadelphia back in 2020. That was the normal. People accepted as, well, you know, you should have worn a mask, or at least you should have shown that this was, this was, you know, how he shows his respect for people. In fact, before I get to my next article here, I want to I want to share with you. This was a, I think, a really great observation that, that somebody made. Um, I want to say it was uh, okay. Yeah, Kevin Bass, PhD, Masters of Science, for what it's worth. He just he threw in his credentials. I'm sharing them with you. He points out that COVID was a pandemic of ideological signaling. Now, tell me if this doesn't make sense. Lockdown protests, sports, church. Well, that's bad. BLM protests, on the other hand, were good. Do you remember? That's exactly how it was portrayed in the media. That's exactly how people in authority portrayed it. What mattered was not whether one was gathering socially, but whether one's social gathering was properly ideologically encoded. Going out, well, that's bad. Going out with a mask, well, that's good. That's because what mattered was not whether one was an infection risk, since masks don't change infection risk at all. Instead, what mattered was whether one showed that one cared. In other words, whether you had the appropriate ideological orientation. And he says, once we abandoned science, all that remained was ideology. And the ideology that stamped someone was a good person 
was the ideology that was called science. And sadly, the mask was the most visible form of that ideology. I mean, I wondered. I really did. Because it was pretty early on in the pandemic when my conscience loudly spoke to me and said, don't go along with this. The masking is more than just simply a protective measure. It is a, it, it's, I didn't know it at the time. I just knew there's something here that doesn't feel right. And my conscience was screaming at me, don't do it. Not because you're so much better than everybody else, but because there's more to it and someone needs to show that there are people who are willing to say no and to push back against this kind of thing. So I didn't understand it fully at the time. Now, I think I have a much better understanding and hopefully a lot of other people do. I've got a great article here from John Tierney. This is from uh, cityjournal.org. No masks, please. We're rational. He says, unfazed by data, scientific research, or common sense, the maskaholics are back. In response to an uptick in COVID cases, they've begun reinstating mask mandates. Now, so far, it's just a few places. A college in Atlanta, a Hollywood studio, two hospitals in Syracuse, but the mainstream media and their favorite experts are working hard to scare the rest of us into masking up yet again. He says, never mind that at least 97% of Americans have COVID antibodies in their blood as a result of infection, vaccination, or both. Never mind that actual experts, the ones who studied the scientific literature before 2020 and drew up plans for a pandemic, advised against masking the public. Never mind that their advice has been further bolstered during the pandemic by randomized clinical trials and rigorous observational studies failing to find an effect of masks and mask mandates. Scientific evidence cannot overcome the maskaholic's faith. By the way, Tom Woods, I think, has one of the most convincing arguments of this. And that is, he'll show you graphs of various cities charting the, the progress of the COVID infection rate. And, and they, they are virtually identical. It follows a very predictable path as to when there are surges and when there are declines in infections. But his challenges now show me, now tell me, which of these cities masked and which ones didn't? And that's the kicker. There is no difference between them. So again, you know, no, is that scientific uh, rigor you're showing there? No, it's just, if masks really made the difference, don't you think that would at least be visible somewhat? Just, just asking. Now, it's tempting to compare the, the maskers with villagers in Cambodia who erected scarecrows in front of their huts to ward off the coronavirus, but that's not fair to the villagers. Their Ting Mong, as the magic scarecrows are called, at least didn't hurt any of their neighbors. But the mask mandates imposed harms on the public that were well known before COVID, which was why occupational safety regulations limited workers' mask usage. Dozens of studies had demonstrated mask-induced exhaustion syndrome, whose symptoms include an increase of carbon dioxide in the blood, difficulty breathing, dizziness, drowsiness, headache, and diminished ability to concentrate and think. It was no surprise during the pandemic when adverse effects of masks were reported in, the stu in a study of healthcare workers in New York City. More than 70% of the workers said that prolonged mask wearing gave them headaches and nearly a quarter blamed it for impaired cognition. 
Now, a possibly toxic effect of prolonged mask wearing, particularly for pregnant women, children, and adolescents, was identified in a review of the scientific literature published this year by German researchers. John Tierney says they warn that mask wearers are rebreathing carbon dioxide at levels linked with adverse effects on the body's cardiovascular, respiratory, cognitive, and reproductive systems. Writing for City Journal, Jeffrey Anderson summarized their conclusions. While eight times the normal level of carbon dioxide is toxic, research suggests that mask wearers, specifically those who wear masks for more than five minutes at a time, are breathing in 35 to 80 times normal levels. Okay, that's not good. And because of research linking, linking rather elevated carbon dioxide levels with stillbirths, the German researchers note the U.S. Navy began limiting the level on its submarines when female crews began serving. The researchers warned that this level of carbon dioxide is often exceeded when wearing a mask, especially an N95 mask. And they point to circumstantial evidence that mask usage may be related to the increase in stillbirths worldwide, including in the U.S., during the pandemic. They also observed that no such increase occurred in Sweden, where the vast majority of the citizens followed the government's recommendation not to wear masks. He says no drug with all these potential side effects would be recommended, much less mandated for the entire population. And a drug that flunked its clinical trials wouldn't even be submitted for approval. Yet the Centers for Disease Control, disdaining any cost-benefit analysis, continues to recommend masking for all Americans on indoor public transportation and for everyone living in areas with high rates of COVID transmission. At the start of the pandemic, even Anthony Fauci advised against masks because there was no evidence of their efficacy. But then, in response to media hysteria, he and the CDC went on to recommend masks anyway, and justified themselves by citing cherry-picked data and consistently flawed studies. Now, John Tierney, Tierney goes into a lot more detail here. This is a really great article. But he, he ends with the question, is there any cure for maskaholism? The fact-checkers at Science Feedback seem immune to genuine science feedback, but there ought to be someone at Facebook with the sense not to keep employing them. The CDC's current leaders and their media acolytes are probably beyond hope, too, if only because they'd have to admit how wrong they've been for so long. But he says there's no reason for the rest of us to heed them. The next time someone urges you to put on a mask, tell them you're already protected against COVID by your magic scarecrow. That's actually not a bad idea. I wonder if I could come up with some kind of a talisman that I could carry around with me, some kind of magic charm. And when someone says, sir, you'll need to put on a mask, I just hold up my rabbit's foot. I'm, this protects me. I'm using this instead. Thank you. Thank you for your concern. By the way, I really, I, I know it's frustrating and there, there's a part of me that, that really wants to draw a hard line and, uh, you know, drop some very uh, unkind language on those who insist. I don't think that's the most productive way to do it. I think you can be firm and you can be polite. But I think the most important thing is to have your mind made up that uh, you will not be wearing a mask regardless of policy, protocol, procedure, blah, blah, blah. We gave them an inch and they took a mile. At some point, we got to put our foot down and say, never again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment of today's show. And we'll be getting to our article of the day coming up here in just a few moments. I don't want to sound all hoity-toity because I'm really not a hoity-toity kind of guy, but I am a huge believer in the value of becoming a classically educated individual. And no, that doesn't mean you need to drop what you're doing and go find some, you know, college, go to St. John's or whatever and, and, and become, you know, classically educated. You can do it in the privacy of your own home. You can do it by just taking a little bit of time each day to sit down and read books that are above your head. I particularly recommend the classics, the, the, uh, the great books of Western civilization. I was thinking about this because I came across an article from Heather Carson on intellectualtakeout.org explaining why a functional knowledge of the trivium is one of the things that this used to be the measure of what made an educated person educated. Now, a lot of people aren't uh, familiar with the trivium or the quadrivium, but these were some of the basic studies that a person needed to master. And we're talking in ancient Greece, you know, to, to be considered an educated person, someone who was capable of reading, writing, speaking, um, calculating, making up contracts and so forth. That was the difference between the educated class and essentially everybody else who were slaves who didn't have the knowledge to do these kinds of things. So she talks about the trivium as the foundation of language arts and says there's a great deal of debate about what constitutes a good education. Our current education system seems to operate on the belief that how children are educated needs near constant tinkering and updating. Meanwhile, the number of individuals choosing education as a profession is on a steady decline with a 19% drop in the number of education bachelor's degrees since 2000-2001. Now, reasons for this drop include burnout, wages, disputes around curriculum, but some argue that teachers are simply undervalued. But she asks, why is this? When as a nation, we clearly value education as a virtue. She says maybe it's because our current educational system has little to nothing to do with being educated at all. I think she's onto something here. She says formal education has been around since the ancient Greeks and included seven branches under the headings of the trivium and quadrivium. Now, those seven branches were grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Together, the study of these disciplines laid the foundation for learning throughout life. The trivium in particular is crucial in gaining the wisdom needed to navigate life in a complex society. Now, the trivium refers specifically to the three arts of learning language. In fact, the word trivium is Latin for where three roads meet and comprises the tools of learning essential to mastering the use of language. The three roads refer to the three stages of learning language, which are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Increasingly, two of these stages are mostly absent from public schools today. Heather Carson says, The grammar stage encompasses early learning, starting around age 6 or 7 through age 9 or 10. So during this phase, the kid is like a sponge, capable of absorbing a great deal of information and facts. By focusing on memorization, narration, learning to read, learning parts of speech, and broadening their vocabulary, children gain a solid foundation for the use of language. It's crucial to a child in this stage that their natural curiosity be nurtured. And she says one of the best ways to do this is turn off the TV, put away the screens, and simply read aloud to your child. 
This helps young children develop their ear for the spoken language. Poetry memorization, training in phonics, reading, and identifying parts of speech all build confidence and help gain mastery of language. In fact, First Language Lessons for the Well-Trained Mind is an at-home curriculum utilizing all of the above-mentioned techniques to help kids build a solid foundation in the grammar stage. That prepares them for the next stage, which is logic. For the most part, the teaching of logic is absent from public schools. However, learning logic is essential to a child's ability to think. At the logic stage, a child's capacity for understanding increases along with the cognitive ability to think abstractly. With this newfound reasoning capacity, children can learn the skills involved in analyzing and questioning. Kids at this stage, roughly ages 10 through 12, are ready for exposure to simple syllogisms, logical fallacies, and informal logic such as compare and contrast, classifications and diagrams. Reading aloud and discussing facts, making arguments, and questioning how and why are common in this stage. One of the best ways to practice logic is through dinner table discussions. Books such as The Thinking Toolbox and The Art of Argument are also fun ways to introduce informal logic. With logic under their belts, children are primed for the final area of the trivium, and that is rhetoric. Now, rhetoric, she says, is characterized by the mastery of writing. In this stage, kids, now teenagers, learn to communicate thoughts and arguments through written expression. Writing essays, reading, discussing philosophy, history, poetry, and classic literature, studying formal logic, and participating in deep discussions are all part of learning and practicing rhetoric. As a fun way to demonstrate and practice this stage of learning, many students enjoy joining speech and debate clubs. Plus, there are many excellent writing curricula for this stage, including Rhetoric, a text for middle and high school students, and writing the Writing and Rhetoric series which introduces writing at an earlier stage if your child is ready. Together, the teaching of grammar, logic, and rhetoric lay the foundation for the mastery of language, which is an essential part of gaining wisdom and communicating this knowledge in the world. Heather Carson says, If we truly value education, education is a virtue. And if we desire for our children to be prepared to go into the world as thinking adults, able to dissect the rhetoric of politicians, write great literature and poetry, and have a sense of competence in the world. We must return to the basics of a great education, and we must return to teaching the trivium. You know, when I see it described in those terms, it sounds a whole lot less hoity-toity and a lot more practical. All right, let's talk about our article of the day. This is such a great one, and, and it's from one of my favorite substacks. that's The Good Citizen. You know, empires have risen and declined pretty regularly throughout human history. And the good citizen has uh, a marvelous take on our current empire of elastic waistbands and where we're headed. The subtitle here is Searching for Style and Substance in the First Empire with an Audio-Visual Recorded History of Its Own Collapse. It's, it's really, it, you know, this isn't uh, black-pilled doomerism. But it's definitely something, I love the, the disclaimer here at the, the beginning of the, the article. If by the second paragraph you sense another black-pilled doomer diatribe manifesting and we pr would prefer your mind be massaged by uplifting and optimistic slants, remember that no effective solution to any social or personal disease, dis-ease, sorry, I need to make sure I'm, I'm reading that correctly, was ever discovered by ignoring reality in the service of feelings. And it does take courage 
to acknowledge where we are. So, you know, a lot of Americans, the article points out, are actively more frequently looking to the past for answers about what's going on. And nothing provides a more measurable perspective for which to comprehend the overwhelming dis-ease conferred by the current decrepit state of, well, everything. And from here, there's a lot of great cultural references that, that indicate where we were. And the, one of the ones that really jumped out at me is uh, showing what people used to, to do in terms of air travel. And if you look back particularly at ads for, you know, uh, the, the old airlines, back in the heyday, people dressed up. I mean, it was like, you know, you're going to church clothes. Well, we're going to be traveling. So they, they dressed up, and it was considered a very a civilized kind of thing. It wasn't like they were putting on airs, but there was a respectability. Now, I don't know. I, you know I'm, I'm trying not to be derogatory, but it sure seems like a lot of our, uh, a lot of our airlines, Spirit, I'm looking your direction, have kind of become the greyhound of the skies. And I've spent enough time sitting in airports to recognize, you know, most people when it comes to travel, they don't really dress up for travel. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's a practical consideration, right? After all, the TSA is going to want to touch your PP or, you know, at least peer through your clothes with the scanner. But you see people in pajamas sometimes just, I mean, it's, I, I'm sorry, there's, there's just no nice way to say it. We dress like we're making a, you know, 11 p.m. run to Walmart to grab some ice cream for the munchies. I mean, it's there doesn't seem to be a lot of self-respect. And by the way, if you notice, there's a lot more videos coming out of people having absolute meltdowns, and I mean entitlement tantrums in airports and on airplanes. I can't help but wonder if there isn't some kind of a connection there. Yeah, I've got a theory. I'm probably wrong, but I have this theory that back when men wore hats in public... We were a more polite society, or at least we expected people to behave themselves and conduct themselves like adults. Something has happened in the meantime. And if you want a great, comprehensive, and I think uh, somewhat humorous look at uh, the empire of elastic waistbands, you'd be hard-pressed to do better than this piece by The Good Citizen. This is The Brian Hyde Show.